at this time, if there's uh, any little ones that need to go to nursery, you can go at this time. This morning's reading comes out of the book of John, chapter 1, verses 19 through 42. I know this is a lot of scripture, folks. You may be wondering why I use a lot of scripture. Early in my early days of uh, pastoring, when I was young and naive, I didn't have much training, and I would use one or two verses to prepare a whole sermon. And then, as I started maturing and growing and, and understanding things, I started to say, well, this can't be good and healthy for me or for the church. Um, I started to learn that you can, uh, once you start to begin to take one or two verses, you might sometimes get lucky and get the context out of there, but most likely you do not. And when you start to take any uh, scripture out of context, you start to proof text. And then you can make the Bible say anything you want to say. And that's a very dangerous place to be in. So I've learned uh, over the last several years to preach in context. In doing so, I safeguard myself by using quite a bit of Scripture. So if you've been wondering why, this is why I do it. Because also then gives us a bigger snapshot of what the Lord is wanting us to learn from His Word. That being said, the reading comes from the book of John 1, 19 through 42. And his word says this. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent out questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there with the two disciples, with his two disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon's brother, was one of the two disciples who heard that John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. For this is the word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. Just, a, just an interesting thought just entered my mind. You know, to think about this, this is actually the call of Simon Peter's life, is what we just read. And it's interesting to think that Andrew, the brother of Peter, first recognized Jesus. It was the first was willing to actually believe in Christ. And not that we, we don't see no hesitation out of Peter to say, well, Jesus, why didn't you call me first? There was... Wasn't jealousy there at all? Praise the Lord. Think about that. Because you know how sibling rivalry can be. I mean, I mean, I have siblings. I'm sure many of you do. And just to think about that, that Peter so loved his brother, he said, man, I, I, we, I found him. And then Jesus says, I'm going to build my rock, on my, the, my church on this guy, your brother. And you don't see any jealousy. What a beautiful thing. And just the Lord was just showing me that in my mind. I just wanted to speak that out to you. But just think about if there had been, where this could have all went. Again, this morning I want to speak to you about Peter's life and his call, where he comes from, his environment. Peter's a very interesting character. Now, many of you probably have been watching the TV show, The Chosen. I know my, my wife and daughter, they just love it. It's their, their thing. Uh, you know, they got the T-shirts and everything. But, you know, this, so this scripture I'm, I'm getting ready to speak into um, was, was spoken about and was written about uh, a lot of it on Peter's life in the very early uh, beginnings of the church. And I think they do a very good job. I think there's some things, obviously, they can't do everything. But I think for the most part, they're, they're pretty historically accurate for the most part. But obviously, I'm going to be speaking on some things that they don't touch on. I'm going to be speaking about a lot about Peter's attitude, his heart, uh, and how the Lord was going to develop him. Now, Peter uh, is a very lively character, you could say. His vices and his virtues are on display for everyone to see. You could say that he's the type of man who wears his heart on his sleeve. He's the type of man... Uh, who constantly, uh, when he should uh, 
when he should be quiet, he's talking. Uh, he constantly is opening his mouth and putting his foot in it. Um, he's the type of man who, uh, who will say things that he thinks when he should remain quiet. He's very impulsive. Um, but why is such a man like him so pivotal in our Christian faith? What makes him such a central key figure? Why should he be important to us? What do we need to know about him? Simon Peter was alive and he was a first-hand witness to the person of Christ Jesus. He was there for many of Jesus' signs and wonders, his miracles that he had performed. He was right there. He was central to most of it. Simon Peter was the key person, key figure for the vital decade of our human race from the year 26 A.D. to the year 36 A.D. Peter was where it was all going on. He was there. He saw it happen. Now, if you take time to comb the Scripture and examine Peter's life, we will also begin to witness, as he did, what Jesus was doing. And by examining Peter, you'll be exposed to the first three years of Jesus Christ's public ministry and to the first seven years, if you did not know this, the first seven years of the early church, the beginnings of it. These are the ten years, beloved, that pivotally turned human history. Then we also not only want to look at these events to look at Peter, but to look at Peter to see the events. It's both and. Because we can see a very ordinary man who was changed and transformed by these very events. So we need to understand how Peter was radically changed. Excuse me for a second. Now Peter started out with a different name. And if you know his first given name, his Hebrew name was Simon. Simon Peter. Now Simon Peter in the Hebrew meaning means Reed. Now, Reed might sound like a real nice name on the front end. Straight and upright, yes. But it's not very flattering for a young man because it also means by every little gentle breeze, it could be bent and swayed and moved by the environment. And that's exactly who Peter turned out to be by his temperament. Now, in psychology, there are different temperaments, and by uh, study, it is said that Peter had what is known as the sanguine temperament. And I'm going to go through this for you now. But as I'm reading through this, just take a personal inventory uh, and say, boy, does this sound like me or not? Um, I, I'm a Peter type of character. I have this type of personality trait, this sanguine temperament. Now, the sanguine temperament is said to be the easiest to spot in others, but the most difficult to spot in yourself. 
A sanguine man is one who's very impulsive, very talkative, never meets a stranger. Elizabeth, have I ever met a stranger? Never. Very emotional. Am I emotional? Am I swayed by my environment? There you go. So, uh, beloved, I, I have her standing here before me. I'm not a liar. <laughs> I, 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 I can feel for Peter. I, I know kind of his moments in life in that sense. But Jesus is going to take this reed. He's going to turn him into a rock. Now, beloved, who says human nature cannot be changed? And that is one of the biggest lies of Satan, that we cannot be changed, that our human nature cannot be changed. I am the way I am, and that's just how it's going to be. Beloved, that is a lie. Now, I must say, though, apart from Christ Jesus, none of us can change. But only through him and through his redemptive work can transformation take place, and then we are changed. So if you can take one thing away from today's sermon, today's message, take this, beloved. And Peter, he's the reed that became the rock or the coward that became a martyr. Think about that. The man who would swear, swear and he would blaspheme and he said on that pivotal night in the garden that when he denied Christ three times, we would become the same man later on who would say, please do not crucify me like my Lord and Savior. He's that man who would say, crucify me upside down. What changed him to be a man who was scared of a little girl in that garden by a fire to deny Christ, to cause him to transform into the man of courage and say, if you're going to crucify me, do it upside down. What changed him? What got into him? And this morning I want to look at the first three things that Jesus had said to him. So when we begin to examine the life of Peter, Peter was a man you never knew again what he was going to do next. The man who would jump out of the boat and try to walk on water. The man who keeps opening in his mouth when he should remain quiet. This is also the man who would always have friends, who would be stimulating in a group. The man who could get over bad moods quickly, but also the same man who could go to the depths of his heart out of something he regrets and weeps very deeply. So this is the man whom we're looking at, the reed that turned into the rock. So let's look at Peter's environment, beloved. He comes out of a pretty tough place. He comes out of a town called Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a fishing village on one side and a very busy little city on the other. Um, and if any of you ever watched a TV show on the History Channel called Deadliest Catch, you will know that fishermen are known to be tough Rugged individuals who wrestle and battle with nature's elements, the wind, the rain, the clouds, the waves. Just that environment alone makes them tough and hardy individuals. These are the type of people who live close to the breadline and to the nature's forces. Fishermen are known to be either superstitious or religious, 
And many times they're a great mixture of the two. Now, if what we can extrapolate from the scriptures is that Peter's particular family was deeply religious. And especially when you're battling the forces of nature, you're deeply aware of your own humanity and that the forces of nature are much stronger than you. As I mentioned earlier, Peter lived in that village called Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was on a particular road, and the road was called the Via Maris. Now, the Via Maris road was kind of like the crossroads of his world. Uh, The Via Maris is what... I'm from Wheeling, West Virginia, and I live very close to I-70. So the Via Maris actually went from Asia all the way to Africa. It was one road that connected the the two continents. And just like I-70 connects almost the East Coast, almost all the way to the West Coast, everybody traveled that road, kings and queens, soldiers, businessmen, common people. And you could say in that little town of Capernaum, Peter could see the world going by. And it's something to think that Peter would watch Roman soldiers, never thinking that one day those Roman soldiers would take him to a very far-off city called Rome and crucify him and his Savior. When Peter was a young man, a great preacher came to his town, to his area, just about 50 miles to the north from where he lived, on the Jordan River. The crowds were excited. The people were coming out by the thousands to hear this preacher. It had been about 400 years since any great preacher had been around. And it was the first great Baptist preacher, not Billy Graham, but John the Baptist, who came on the scene. And this is where we come into the call of Peter's life. Thousands were coming out. Many were getting baptized and coming into relationship with God during this time. In verse 41, it says this. The first thing that Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looks at Simon and says, You are Simon, son of John. You will now be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Beloved, all I can imagine is Jesus must have x-ray vision. When he looks at us, I believe he sees two people. He sees the person that we are, and he sees the person he wants us to become. When Jesus looks at people, he doesn't look at our outward appearance, but he looks to our heart. Next slide, please. Beloved, if we're really paying attention to the Bible, we'll see a consistent theme roll throughout the Scriptures. Again, Jesus sees two people, the person we are, the person he wants us to be. We'll see, we have Moses, a Hebrew child, a slave baby who becomes a prince. You have Joseph who goes from slave to the governor, the treasury of Egypt. We have David, a shepherd boy, who goes and becomes the king of Israel. Beloved, God looks for the heart of the worshiper. 
The truth is many times when we, we have a hard time in our humanity to look beyond the external. We have a hard time getting beyond the veneer when we look at other people. But God wants us to look at the heart. When Jesus looks at you, what does he see? Who does he see? What new name would he give you? Those of us who have known Jesus for some years probably would never have dreamt what we are doing now or where we would be. But I believe he sees it or saw it. Not only can he see the two identities, not only can he see the two people, but he knows how to change one into the other. And that's the glorious miracle of it all. Most of us have had dreams of what we wanted to do or could do or wanted to be. To make something worthwhile of our lives. But sometimes, and the sad truth is this, sometimes life's pressures get in the way and causes our dreams to become abandoned. In short, we lose our vision. Then you hit a certain age and then Again, another sad reality is that many of us settle for the normal versus trying to continue on for the extraordinary. And many just give up. But beloved, the truth is the Lord wants you to press in. He doesn't want us to give up. And that's when we need to pursue him all the much more. But when Jesus looks at us and he calls us by our new name. Do you know what that new name would be? When Jesus gives us a new name, I believe he always sums up that person very accurately. For instance, James and John in the Bible, in Scripture, they're known as bow and urges, which is not a compliment, again. It's a mockery of them, and it actually means explosive, blows your top, otherwise known as the sons of thunder. Now keep that in mind, beloved. This explosive attitude, because even Peter has that type of explosive attitude as well. In Scripture here that I've read this morning, we find Peter out in his boat. He's been fishing all night, trying to catch fish for the market. I mean, he's, a, he's an expert fisherman. It's what he does for a living. He knows how to catch fish. He's out at night. He has his lanterns lit to make it look like the moon coming up over the lake to help those fish rise. They come into his nets. He probably has moved his boat several times throughout the night because he keeps on casting and recasting those nets. And to no extent, not able to catch a thing. So he keeps trying all night long. Morning comes, he's fully exhausted. As he's pulling up to the shoreline, he sees this man preaching to a crowd, and he recognizes it's Jesus. And Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, let me borrow your boat for a moment so that I can go out a little bit and use the water to carry my voice to the crowd. So Peter agrees, and Jesus gets aboard, and after Jesus finished his teaching, he says to Peter, to Simon, let's go out fishing. 
Now, could you imagine what Peter might be thinking? I could. I think he would have had the, father, the, the thought, why bother going out? I've been out there all night, haven't caught a thing. I've been all over this water, keep dropping my nets, nothing, you know, nothing's there. It's dry out there. I've been out there all night. I have nothing to show for it. You're a, furthermore, you're a carpenter. What do you know about fishing? You might be able to make a fishing rod. I don't think they used fishing rods back then, but you know. But you're going to tell me how to catch fish. And Jesus tells him to push off into the deep. And Peter's thinking, but the fish are caught in the shallows here. But to Peter's credit, for once he keeps his mouth shut. In Luke 5, he says this, Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night, haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now this is the first moment we see a beginning of a token of surrender of Peter's heart. He says, okay, we'll do it. And he let down these nets one last time. And when they had done so, it says in Scripture, they caught such a large number of fish, their nets began to break and their boat began to sink. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come over to help them. And they came and they filled both boats, and now both boats are beginning to sink. Now Peter's situation was such that he couldn't handle it. With the breaking of nets, the sinking of boats, I'm sure Peter was a little scared. This was unnatural, what was going on. And when anything supernatural occurs, many people get afraid. Whenever something is happening that we can't account for, that we would consider normal, we get a little intrepidation. That's the first reaction of the human heart when we can't understand the supernatural taking place is fear. His fear, I believe, led to moral shame. And that is why he says in, in John 5, 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. For I'm a sinful man. He couldn't explain exactly what had happened, but he knew it was because of the greatness of Jesus. And he felt the sinful sin in his own heart. I believe this is the point where Peter really realized how much of a sinner he was and how spiritually void he was in his life. Because up to this point, he was doing everything on his own out of his own power and strength, and out of his own greatness. And there before him stood the greatness of one before him. And at that point, he recognized his shame. And he could not stand and bear to be before Christ. And then Jesus says, out of his kindness, okay, Peter, I will go. But one thing, will you come with me? I will make you of fishers of men. And these scriptures, beloved, 
here in John, I believe there's two conditions in following Christ. The first point is this. If you're following me, if you follow me, you will see the man who was and the man who will be. The second point is there's a demand and there's an offer. The demand is simply this, follow me. The offer is simply this, I will make you. Now these are the two sides of the gospel. The gospel is a demand, it demands that you not follow a system, you not even follow a church, but it demands that you follow the person of Christ Jesus. It's a demand that you follow him all the way. The offer is this, Peter, I will make you. And, then, and for Peter, I'll make you a fisher of men. Something he never dreamt he could be. Let me ask you this, beloved. Let's bring this home a little bit closer to us. If you are a farmer, what would Jesus say to you? Follow, follow me. I'll make you a cultivator and a harvester of souls. If you're an engineer, follow me and I'll make you a... Uh, a builder of bridges between God and men. If you're a doctor or a nurse, follow me, and I'll make you a healer of bodies. If you're a dentist, follow me, and I'll help you fight decay. What would Jesus say to you? Follow me, and I'll make you, you finish the sentence. Beloved, Jesus announces he's now going up into the hills just outside of Capernaum. And anyone can go. But like anything, the majority stays behind. Only those who had really bought in with Jesus went on with him. This is when Jesus chooses the twelve. He says two things to them. I want you to be with me. Walk with me. Eat with me. Stay with me. Jesus is now going to concentrate his power over these 12 individuals and teach them to do what he does. He knew by multiplying that power over the 12, he could better serve humanity. Beloved, I'm getting ready to close here with this. To follow a king would bring them glory. But let it be known, beloved, even for these 12, there was going to be no crown without a cross. And then the path to glory would lay through the valley of suffering. Beloved, if we want to follow the Lord, we have to go all the way. It's one thing to say we follow Jesus just so we can get our threshold over into the heaven and say we're saved. But are we really following the Lord? Because going all the way means we have to pick up our cross and follow him. In the days of the old missionaries who would travel to other countries, it said that they would pack, they would load coffins with them onto the boats, put all their belongings into it, because once they got to the other side, they would pull their coffins off onto dry ground and burn the ships behind them, because they knew they were never going back. The path to glory lies through the valley of suffering. 
Are we willing to suffer with our Christ, with our Lord and Savior? Are we willing to burn the ships and leave it all behind and go for His glory and not for our own? Did you know, beloved, out of the 12 disciples, one committed suicide, 10 were martyred, only one died a natural death. If you haven't read a book, and this is probably another thing I'll be teaching on before long, is Fox's Books of Martyrs. In reading those stories, you will hear how these different martyrs died and what they went through for their Lord and Savior. The second thing is this. The time to go out to the world to share Jesus. When we look, when Jesus looks at you, do you know what he sees? What name would he give you? So in closing, beloved, I believe the Lord sees you, who you are now, and whom he wants you to become. The question is, are we willing to humble our hearts and say, Father, you know best. Allow him to transform us into his likeness and to go with him where he's calling us to go. Would you please pray with me? Father, you have so much in store for us. Even, Lord, our older saints, Father, as well. You've called us all. And I can't help but wonder, Father, are we really completely sold out to you? I know there's probably even areas in my own heart, Father, that still, Lord, need to be surrendered to you. And Father, I just pray, Lord, you would just reveal those areas to me, Father, that I can lay them at your feet and say, Father, have all of me. And Lord, I would just pray that would be all of our prayer this day. Lord, you would have all of us, 100% of who we are, not just the 10% that we're willing to give you or the 20%, but Lord, we would give you 100% of our hearts, souls, and minds. Father, help us, Lord, to follow you, that there's no crown without a cross, and the path of the glory lies through the valley of suffering. Continue to remind us of these truths, I pray. In Christ Jesus' name, amen and amen.